Hello, and thank you for listening to the Teaching Math Teaching Podcast. The Teaching Math Teaching Podcast is sponsored by the Association of Mathematics Teacher Educators. Your hosts are myself, Eva Thenheiser, Dusty Jones, and Joel Amidon. Today, we're talking with Teresa Wills from George Mason University about teaching math at a distance. Teresa just published a book by that name, Teaching Math at a Distance, and we are excited to hear more from her about the book. If you're interested in integrating some of this into your classes, Teresa has an incredibly developed website that is her name.com with lots of resources. Welcome, Teresa. Do you want to take a minute to introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. My name is Teresa Wills. I'm an assistant professor at George Mason University. I teach pre-service math methods course to elementary uh, teachers secondary teachers and in-service math courses to math specialists. And I have been teaching online since 2010, and I love it. That's really cool because we all need to learn from you how to do this online teaching well. So let's start by some broader questions and then get into this online business. How did you start teaching math teachers and why? I started teaching math teachers as an adjunct. They were looking for someone to co-teach a uh, rational numbers math course for math specialists and kind of gave it a try and fell in love with it. So I was fortunate for that opportunity. And then in the online world, I've been asked to teach a math course to math in-service teachers all around the state of Virginia. And so back in 2010, the idea was like, how do we reach everyone in remote settings and maybe do it online, but let's do it synchronously. And so I got my first taste of it back then. So I already want to veer off the script because you mentioned synchronously here. Do you do most of your online teaching synchronously or asynchronously or both? Almost exclusively synchronous, meaning that we're live. We all log in at 4.30. It's important for me to pay attention to time zones. And it is a lot like a face-to-face class. And as a matter of fact, a lot of my early research in this was looking at, I would teach one course at 4.30 p.m. in face-to-face setting. And then at 7.20, the next time we would teach, I'm online, exact same course. So I need to make sure that I keep my pedagogy the same in both of them and that I don't not do great things just because of the setting. So we're going to get towards the end, we're going to get more into the online stuff, but let's hear first from you. What's the best advice that you received when you started? So the best advice that I received happened long before I started teaching math teachers. It happened my first year teaching as a classroom teacher. And I had a math coach, her name was Marilyn, and she was that quintessential math coach that you really aspired to be. She was always interested in my professional growth, what I wanted to do. And she was the first person to bring up the idea of, are you teaching kids to be arithmetic solvers or are you teaching them to be mathematicians? And it was because of that question that's carried me to where I am today, because I'm always looking at problem solvers. Like, am I just teaching someone to be a computer or am I teaching them to solve problems? And so the best advice I received translated into the way that I acted then as a math coach myself. And I kept that same kind of focus where I asked people what they wanted to do and the the questions then supported them in their learning and growing. 
And I think about that too, whether I'm working with pre-service teachers or in-service teachers that, you know, when we are teaching them, if we are really looking at being able to influence them, uh, change their teaching practice and really dive into something new and great, it needs to be personal. So it starts with a question, just like Marilyn did my first year teaching. This sent me down like so many paths of thinking because it really captures this idea of, are you telling other people what to do or are you helping them figure out what they want to do? Exactly. So let's turn it around. What's the best advice that you gave or what advice would you give to somebody who is just starting out? And we asked this question because part of the idea of this podcast was to allow more people to listen in on some of the conversations that typically happen at conferences like AMTE and that we're hopefully not going to miss all the way, but probably with the online version that we have this time because you don't just bump into people. So this is a way for you to like share some of your advice and for other people to listen in. I think my advice would be to model what you preach, much like in the classroom. When I'm talking with students, young kids about mathematics, I don't want to give them a formula and walk them through it. So what I preach is problem solving. Now, if I'm going to be an effective instructor, I need to make sure that I'm doing the same thing with pre-service and in-service teachers. So modeling the best ways of teaching, meaning that if I want to model, you know, collaboration, it's because, you know, when you go in the classroom, collaboration is a great pedagogy. If I want teachers to use asset language when describing children, then I better make sure that I'm using asset language when describing math specialists and pre-service teachers. Same thing with things like representations, reasoning, whatever those things are that you're preaching, it can feel intimidating because you have so many things you want to tell. But my advice is by not telling and modeling, you're actually delivering that instruction in a way that they can actually see what it would look like and then implement in their class. That's really, really good advice. And uh, something that I, it resonates with me because I think about, I think about that in my own teaching, you know, there's, there's ways of teaching things through say direct instruction, but is that what I want my students to do? Or is that the best route for that? For getting that information about, and then mostly, is that how I want them to do work with their future students? Exactly. Yes. All right. Let's jump into our current situation. Since you are the expert on online teaching, I'm assuming you already taught online, but let's talk about what are you teaching now? Is it online? And how is it going? Right now, I'm teaching three courses. I'm teaching pre-service secondary math methods. I'm teaching an in-service course called Rational Numbers for Math Specialists, and the other one is a research internship for Math Specialists. They're all online, and, you know, over the past year since, you know, COVID first hit over here in the United States, I've also had the opportunity to teach elementary pre-service math methods, which is really interesting because so much of elementary school is very, you know, shoulder to shoulder, small group on the carpet and more. And so, yes, those ones were taught online also. For the pre-service teachers, these are the first time that they're being taught 
100% online. But because our math specials courses have been online for so long, I had the tools to make sure that they were engaging, interactive, that every student had a voice in the way that they want to contribute. And then this semester, one thing that I'm really excited about is I'm taking the textbook High School Mathematics Lessons to Explore, Understand, and Respond to Social Injustice. And that is our text for our secondary pre-service math methods course. Um, And each, yeah, I'm very excited about this. Each class period, we do a lesson, but we do it with the lens of the pedagogy that we're teaching. So maybe it is how to orchestrate discussions and we do a lesson and that's the focus. They have additional readings on that. There might be one on assessment. They have additional readings on formative and summative, but we do a lesson from the text and that's the lens at which we look at it. So we're seeing so many great connections with other, you know, really good mathematics resources. And just a quick shout out that there is a book for middle school, early elementary and upper elementary coming out in that same series next year. Ooh, exciting. So that's really cool. I want to make sure because I'm so interested in all the pieces that I give Joel and Dusty some time to jump in and ask questions. I'm kind of jealous of you in, in using the uh, high school math lessons to explore, understand, and respond to social injustice for a methods class. I mean, I, I have, I'm looking forward to the uh, elementary version. That's where I have the opportunity to teach elementary math methods. But just knowing that text and how dense it is with all the different kind of important documents that they've put in there, I, I use the metaphor over and over again of like, it's like orange juice concentrate, but then thinking of like, how do you get access to not only like the math standards, but then they also have the social justice standards in there. And like, I guess maybe that's a question like weaving in those, you know, cause each of those lessons are addressing social justice standards too. Like, how do you balance that work in doing it within the methods classroom? I think the balance that is really important for me to make sure that I showcase, especially with secondary pre-service teachers, is they want to see the mathematics. They want to ensure that when I'm doing a lesson, that I'm able to knock out some standards. I'm able to address standards that I need to address. So making sure that that mathematics is front and center, which does a phenomenal job of, Mm -hmm. and then having the discussion about the mathematics. We just did a problem on children uh, crossing the border. And what's really interesting is when you apply the mathematics to it, there is something different that's happened this past year in 2020 that makes the data look very different. It makes the data look like it's decreasing. But then we had some really great questions. Why might that be? Could there be political reasons? Could there be policy reasons? Or could it be COVID-related? And so then they just went and they found so many more numbers. They looked at the populations compared to our local population, and they used the numbers and the mathematics as the heart of the lesson. But the conversation was about these social justice issues. Yeah, which led to curiosity, which leads to more math, which is awesome. That's great. Yes, exactly. So I have lots of questions. How did you do this? How did you get so good at that? <laughs> but I don't, I don't know that I, I, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole uh, right there. But one thing I would like to ask you, since you've been teaching online for, I guess, a decade or more, if, mm-hmm. I'm, if I'm doing the math right, is how do you incentivize or generate sort of a buy-in from your students to keep interacting with you in the online setting? You had mentioned you know, earlier 
you were teaching a face-to-face class and then the next classroom period was online, but you wanted to keep the pedagogy the same and not sacrifice any of the good stuff that you were doing in one place or the other. So, I was wondering what you do to help your students kind of buy into this. I think as an instructor, you need to first know yourself. What are your non-negotiables? For me, it was things like rich tasks, lots and lots and lots of representations, and having this productive discussion. And so, once you're so kind of clear and you have this laser-like precision on what is your non-negotiable, it does make things a little bit easier in figuring out your next step. How do I do that? And so, I've heard students say things like, oh, online classes are great because you know what? I can go shopping on the web at the same time. Now, most people hear that and that makes us cringe, right? We don't want that to happen. We want to have them engage. But then I started looking around. And I was like, hey, you know what? They're doing the same thing on their phones and face-to-face classes. So, instead of getting frustrated at this, I started looking for the silver lining. What does this mean that they can do? That means that they can multitask in ways that we haven't accessed before. Mm-hmm. And so, when you're asking, you know, how do we get people involved in it more? I like to kind of overload in multiple modalities. This idea that if you're already multitasking, then let's multitask in ways that are productive for the learning. And so, I've developed kind of these protocols that my students learn kind of organically and in the beginning, but the airspace that's using the microphone and listening is something that's used for new ideas and connections. And that way we constantly have new ideas. Well, I don't know about you all, but when I teach teachers, they always have really good personal experiences. When I taught this back then, or, you know, when I was a student back then, or, you know, whatever that personal experience is. And while that is a fantastic experience, sometimes it diverts the discussion. So, what I'll do is the chat box gets filled with personal experiences, So, we have some people using the microphone, new ideas and connections, others in the chat box with when I was young, when I was a student, when I was a first-year teacher, when I was teaching yesterday, and making those personal connections there. If I see some in the chat box that are really, really relevant and worth bringing up again, I might bring that person into the airspace. But the other thing I like to do is using dynamic math talks. And dynamic means that your math talk is moving around so much more than it would be in a face-to-face classroom. And so, you know, in my math classes, we're problem solving. I might have a question about a growing pattern, let's say little cubes that are growing, and there might be an equation y equals 2x plus 1. So, you might think about what that looks like visually, y equals 2x plus 1. And the discussion is on the growth rate and the starting point. But again, I want to get all my students involved. So, instead of asking one or two students to rephrase it, I'm going to make 25 duplicate copies of the slide and say, all right, everyone, I've put a purple and a green arrow in. Please point the purple one to the growth rate and the green one to the starting point. Mm -hmm. And because that slide had an equation, it had a graph, it had a table, it had a visual, it had a story problem, those arrows are pointing at all very different things. But what I'm getting out of it is I got a quick formative assessment of all my students, what they know, and they can see those two important mathematical topics in a lot of variety of ways of different representations. Nice. So, you can see here that you are more likely to engage when you have a modality that fits your personality 
Mm-hmm. And when you're kind of overloaded and, oh, I need to move this over here. Oh, let me write that personal experience in the chat box. Ooh, that brought a new idea. Let me raise my hand. And so there's all these things happening simultaneously. They can all see it. I can see it. And there's just so much more formative feedback and discussion. That's wonderful. So I want to follow up because, as I said, probably 20 times already, I'm using all of your stuff and it's amazing. And so I'm also using this idea of using one slide per student. And I just want to dig a little bit deeper into this right now. How does a student know which is their slide? Great question. Sometimes I just put a text box at the very top and put name. Then they go down, they find a slide that's available, they type their name in it, and they claim it as their own. Because that takes the least amount of planning on my end. But I also, right, that's very important. Mm -hmm. I also want to make sure that I release ownership of the class. So sometimes I will put a group slide with all the directions, who your group members are. And then I'll say, put yourself in a group, add a new slide, put your information on it, call it yours. And so by releasing the ownership and having them kind of take over, they make their slide, they put their names on it. They start to do things like make new slides when they need more room. They'll start to do things like, ooh, I like group two's idea. Let me screen capture what they have. We'll bring it on ours and we'll edit it with our ideas next. And Mm -hmm. so- There becomes this kind of collaboration where you can see what other groups are doing, but you're just privileged to the airspace, the microphone and headset of the people in your groups. You have to infer a little bit more. But in terms of, you know, how do you let them know as quick as I can, I'll release that to the students and have them put, you know, their name, their group name on the slide. So another question, you have these 25 slides with the arrows, which by the way, this is such a cool example. And I see how this gives you a really quick formative assessment of where everybody's at. How do you bring that together afterwards? So online learning has one super advantage, and that's that you get to see the rough draft thinking as it's happening. So when they are working on their slide, for an example, that they might have a green arrow pointed at the opposite thing. So I want to see y-intercept and slope, but maybe they had them reversed. I can take a screen capture of that, save that for me. They're probably going to go in and fix it when they notice that theirs is the only one looking that way. But now that I have that screen capture, I bring it into the discussion. I say, hey, what if you did this with your arrows? There's no student name on it. It was an in-the-moment thing. The mistake was there. And then we get people in the discussion about hey, why is this a common misconception? What's going on here? That person saves face, but oftentimes they're really excited that I picked their work and they're like, oh, that was me. I was thinking this. And then I realized that I had a mix up or you know, whatever the case is. But that works if people are making a table of values and you want to snag that image because in your exit ticket, you want everyone to fill in the rest of the values. You can do it when they're not finished and kind of save that rough draft thinking. Exit ticket is not something everybody might be familiar with. Do you want to explain what that is? I'll have a virtual exit ticket and each student might write their one response on the class slide. And simultaneously, there's 15 people typing and you can see the letters all appear at once. I could use an exit ticket at the end of the class to ask what is slope. Everyone responds on a piece of paper in my face-to-face class, or they respond on that slide in my online class. It takes them one minute to respond. I get some formative feedback on, do they get the point of my lesson? So if they all respond on one slide, 
practicality wise, do you care that you might not know who said what? Or how do you know who said what? So I'm very purposeful in the affordances of the anonymity that's available online. If I want students to put their name with it, I let them know up front, hey, write your name and your response to it. I use that for attendance all the time. It's a major time saver. But also, I'll do things that are completely anonymous. You can use drag and drop things that are anonymous. They can type things in. So it's various levels of accountability. And sometimes that anonymous lens allows them to dig deeper and maybe put something up that they wouldn't have put up otherwise. And what's powerful there is when it's anonymous and you see three other people who are anonymous writing the same thing as you, it increases your confidence in the mathematics, in the pedagogy, and in the online learning. Teresa, I've I've been looking and poking around at your website since Ava gave it such outstanding reviews, and I like it. Ava said it was your name, Teresa Wills, Teresa, the version with an H, but I love the, I guess this is a pun maybe, where there's a wills, there's a way. So Teresa wills, you could put some spaces and punctuation there to make it spell there's wills. And this will be in the show notes as well. So you can just click that. But I was looking and I noticed this Mather Days, free professional development every Saturday. Can you tell us a little bit about what Mather Days are? Sure. You know, I come from a world where I really believe that we can change math instruction if we have purposeful routines, community building, and math tasks with rich discussion and collaboration. Those are my goals as a math educator. So, Mather Days is a one-hour PD that models what a one-hour math block might look like. And we do tasks from kindergarten to calculus in there, but they're not really grade-centered. They're more like if you look at a trajectory of a topic, how different grade levels might address that topic. So, a Mather Days is one hour. It starts with a little community building. It uses a math routine. I try to stick with established routines. I try not to make any brand new things, just show how we would do something in an online setting, launch the rich task, 20 minutes in small groups, and then we come together and I use the five practices to host the discussion. And I think teachers are looking for that. They're looking for like, how do I do a rich task online? How do I get 45 representations in 20 minutes? That's what Mather Days is. And what's really neat for people out there is these are live recordings They're publicly available on YouTube. So you've got the one-hour block. I've got about 40 sessions up there, blank slide templates and completed slide templates, which means that, you know, if you're looking for a data set, you know, how do teachers learn math? It's there. It's available ready for people to tinker with. And if you're looking for how to, you know, put a rich task in, it's there. And I like to think they get a little better each time as I get more practice. And, you know, you're also seeing all the online ways that student voice is honored in the online class. That's really cool. And so if I wanted to, I hear about this, I'm like, oh, I want to engage in this, but but I've got something on Saturday. Maybe it's, I don't know, a conference that I, I need to present at myself or something. <laughs> and I can't make the online live thing that's happening. I can still find these recordings and kind of uh, benefit from them that way. Is that is that right? Yeah. All the recordings are available if you want to do any of the problems in your classes. So I might have a rich task that I want to use with my pre-service teachers. You've got the blank slide templates also, and you can, you know, implement it and try out some of the online routines and pedagogies that, you know, I mentioned student voice that honor 
student's voice in multiple modalities. Awesome. Teresa's offering, you know, free professional development and she just gave a couple of research questions for any of those doc students out there who might be looking for some research <laughs> so, like, and a data yeah. set. This is even better. Like, wow. If you want 40 different videos of the same kind of one hour thing, the people that come, you know, you know, provide that data set for doc students. So, you know, you want to look at 40 different slide presentations and the representations that are there. You want to look for dynamic math talk. You want to look for ways that every student's voice is honored. They're all there. I don't have time to go through everything, but I guarantee you it's there. And the goal of these PD sessions is how to implement these things online. Yes. You know, there's two kind of two sides to this coin. It's to provide math professional development in a sense of how do I do a routine in just seven minutes and get that kind of protocol down so I can do it with my students? And how do I do rich tasks? These are things that, you know, when people come, they go, hey, where can I get more rich tasks? And so I try to bring ones from other sources in, put a couple of my own in there and just develop these teachers who love implementing rich tasks. I mean, that's the world I want to live in. So that's why I do it. So a question we ask in general is what makes a good day in your profession? For me, a good day is when I get an email from a teacher who says, hey, I tried this, usually interactive slides or, or something like that. And I heard from students that I never heard from before. When I hear that they've implemented something that's opened up a channel for students who might not love the microphone or might not want to have their camera on, and they realize that there's more modalities out there, and now those students are able to have a voice, boy, does that make my day. That's cool. I was just thinking as you were talking that some of the things I've played with was asynchronous instruction. And some of the benefit that we saw in that when we do number talks is that every student gets to share, which is similar to what you were saying with your arrows earlier with the example. And so online provides a way for all student voices to be heard in a way that's not possible in an in-person classroom sometimes due to time restrictions. Right. There's that idea of online, you have both the airspace for students who want to talk over the microphone, but simultaneously, there can be 20 other text boxes on a slide filling up with ideas. So if you're a teacher, you can kind of scan those, pick out some of the best conversation pieces, and ask those students to explain a little bit more. And now your conversation is so much richer because you have the opportunity to kind of screen some of the ideas and pick out those ones that really meet your objectives. Yeah, one of the things that I've been starting to think about is how can we do the things that work better in this online setting how can we keep those when we return to in-classroom settings in most places? I think there's a lot of great lessons that we can learn. Before COVID hit, I was teaching a, a doctorate course and the students were using Google Slides on laptops in the classroom as, you know, we're going to respond here, but also have verbal chat. And sometimes some of my students were sick. They wanted to not miss a class, but they also didn't want to come in, kind of, you know, spread their germs. And, you know, they wanted to stay in their comfy clothes at home. So they would call in on someone's phone, listen in that way, which now we have all these other great features, but they would be participating exactly as if they were right there on the interactive spaces like Google Slides, Google Docs, Google Sheets, and more. 
Yeah, that's something I was thinking about, Teresa. It was like just when you're talking about making the, you know, whatever, how many copies of the same slide. And I think about how much time I spent, like, ooh, five minutes before class and when I was teaching high school math, running to the copy machine to quickly get something ready and like, oh, I made a mistake. I'm like, versus, you know, having that sort of hybrid sort of space where we're, yeah, we're online in Google Slides doing some participation, but we're in a, still in a face-to-face environment. Like, I want to make another copy. So, okay, throw in another slide or, oh, we need some more space here. All right. You know, it's like there's the physical constraints kind of get taken away from if we can be it in a device environment. So I just, I like how you're pushing and, and it's even like thinking about where can we bring this into a face-to-face environment using some of these lessons that you're teaching too? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we can cut down, I cut down so many different paper photocopies by, you know, using the Google Slides. And there's also that kind of sense of when I'm not the one to create everything, that I give mm-hmm. that ownership up to my students and they're the creators, yes. that I have learned so many more great teaching practices just from that and seeing the amazing things that they can come up with that my worksheet might not have prompted them to do. So we already talked about some of the resources that you have available, like your website, the Mather Days, the slides. I was wondering if you can summarize and then maybe give us a little bit of a taste of the book that you just published. And we are going to host a book club about this book next summer. But if you can just give us a little bit of an insight and then maybe people could read it before we start meeting in the summer to talk about it. Yeah, you know, so the book is set up into three sections. The getting ready section uh, talks more about the technology, concerns you might have about students and supporting students. But what is really neat, especially to math teacher educators, is part two where you're facilitating the instruction. So there's examples about building classroom communities in important ones that don't take extra time. They're part of your math lesson. And as a side note, we become best friends. There's strategies for promoting student voice, and those could work across all subject areas, but like how do you set it up to get multiple groups to respond on the same slide so that they can see each other's thinking while they're discussing? How do you use drag and drop to let students self-assess objectives? Things like that. There's a whole section on different math routines, and they include so many favorites from choral counting, same but different, estimations, which one doesn't belong, and more. And it's like, hey, here's how you do it online to give more students voice. There's one, uh, you know, specifically about discourse where I bring up Smith and Stein's five practices, how that changed my thinking and teaching. And then here's some of the extra things to do when you do this online. And then everything from that to learning stations or math workshop and how you kind of move your class into being independent self-starters as opposed to like waiting for the directions to be in their group or repeating the directions many times to the whole class that they can be more independent. So part two is a favorite for, you know, math teachers and, you know, teachers of teachers. And part three goes into discussions about assessment, homework, and uh, home applications. So we have the book. I just want to make sure I'm not, not missing anything, which sounds amazing. We have the website. Is there anything else you want to add to this? I think we are looking at a time for the book club. And I know for me, my semester ends end of April, beginning of May. But I think we're looking at uh, summertime for doing the book club. Is that right? Yep. Wonderful. 
Thank you, Teresa, for joining us for the podcast today. Thanks for having me. And thank you again for listening to the Math Teaching Math Teaching Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. We hope that you are able to implement something that you have just heard. I'm really sure that everybody's able to implement something and take an opportunity to interact with other math teacher educators.